Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all the things into hands, into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was, about, who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brant. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and it's my joy to bring you the Word of God this morning from this uh, remarkable and beautiful text. Um, as we come to the Word of God, though, I want to ask that you would join with me in prayer, that we'd come with confidence before the throne of grace to ask for grace and to ask for mercy as we unpack this text. God, we come to you this morning. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. And we do ask, we ask that you would meet us in our weakness, or that you would show us your glory. 
Lord, that you would challenge us and change us and shape us uh, by what we see in this passage. Father, I pray that, um, that you would be at work this morning in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we look to you and ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, one of the things that I love uh, most about YouTube holes is uh, getting stuck in YouTube restoration videos. I don't know if you guys have seen YouTube restoration videos, but there's videos of all these sorts of old things that people uh, then work on and, and bring from their old, old, terrible state into a new and completely refurbished state. So whether that might be a Zippo lighter from World War II that's all completely covered in damage and rust and grime uh, being restored to, to near-perfect beauty or my own personal favorite, old classic motorcycles. It's nothing, nothing more beautiful than watching a BMW R50 from the 1950s uh, be completely changed and, and, and detailed and worked on until it's this beautiful piece of machinery again. Keep that in mind and then come back to it. Because we're in our series on the goodness of Jesus this morning. And in this series, what I've been trying to do is to show you how much better Jesus is than anything else in this world. It's very easy to do that as we open up the Bible and see what God's shown us about who Jesus is in Scripture. But we've also been learning that something terrible happens when we worship and serve things other than God. That as we don't worship and serve Jesus and see him and all the goodness and glory of who he is, we're left unsatisfied if we try to fill our lives up with things apart from him. And even as we do that and go to those other things which the Bible calls idols that take his place, it even hurts us and damages our humanity. We become like what we love. And as we live and love, for example, our wealth or our success, or our romance, or beauty, or pleasure, or even our children, more than and rather than God, our humanity becomes rusted over. And the brilliant glory of God that we're meant to reflect as his image bearers, it, it stops shining forth from us. But that leads us to the incredible thing that we see about Jesus' goodness in this passage. Because John shows us that Jesus is the Savior who's come to serve us by meticulously restoring and transforming our sinful and broken humanity. He's the Savior who came to save sinners like us. And there's three ways in this passage, I think, that we see that Jesus did this incredible work of restoration in us. Number one, it's by the way that he loves us to the end. Number two, by the way that he cleanses us from our sins. And number three, by teaching us to serve. So pay attention. We're going to see the goodness of Jesus revealed in this incredible passage in all these ways that he's come to save us, to restore us, to, to return us into relationship with God and to restore who we were meant to be. So look at verse 1 in our first point. Jesus restores us by loving us to the end. And John writes this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. I just want to stop right there. See, when, when John uses that word hour, this hour, or Jesus' hour, or Jesus' time, 
in the Gospel of John, it's kind of like code. Because all throughout the Gospel of John, these key po- moments and times have been used where John's used that language to describe very specifically and look forward to very spe- specifically Jesus' climactic hour. And in fact, John 13 verse 1 is a key transitional statement in the book as a whole. From now on, from this verse on to the end of the book, the narrative moves forward very deliberately and, and speedily towards the cross of Jesus Christ. The climactic hour of Jesus' death for us on the cross. And that's important because that shows us, I think, as John sets up the story of the foot washing, that this foot washing isn't just the describing of some other thing that happened in Jesus' life and the life of his disciples. It's not just that. It's much more than that. In fact, Jesus uses the foot washing to teach his disciples something very specific about the nature of his love for us. To teach us that there is a love that Jesus displays here at the foot washing that only anticipates the greater love that he will display for us on his cross. And that's why John, I think, adds at the end of verse 1 a very specific clause before going on describing what actually happened. He said, And having loved his own who were in the world, and we know that, we know that Jesus loved his disciples and he lived that way, but now the movement shifts and, and gets into high gear. We're going to see the, the fullness of that love. He says, Now... He loved them to the end. Now he's going to fill up the measure of the overflowing abundance of the love of God for his disciples. So what does the foot washing then teach us about God's love? What specifically? Christ City, the foot washing shows us that that Jesus' love, that the love of God is unlike our love in a very specific way. See, our love, what we're willing to do for the good of someone else around us, it has limits. Let's be honest. Some of you have told me you've loved me before here in this congregation, but there's limits to that love. Right? There are things that you are not willing to do in love for me. There's limits to our, our human love. There's limits to the humiliation and the suffering that we will undergo for the good of another. But at the foot washing, Jesus is illustrating how his love is different. He's showing us that God's love has no limits to the suffering and the humiliation that he is willing to endure for our eternal good. His love is different. He is willing to lower himself more low, to sacrifice himself more deeply for our good to save us. Look with me at verses four to five and let's just look at that foot washing then with these things in mind, knowing that it anticipates and points forward to the cross of Jesus. Jesus, John writes, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. All right, cards on the table. I don't want to wash your moist feet. Just something that's pretty gross about caring for people's feet. But it was worse in Jesus' day. 
Because back in Jesus' day, people wore sandals and they lived uh, in the land of Israel. It's hot there. Feet get sweaty. They walked on streets that were shared by animals. You can imagine what that was like. I mean, isn't it true that there's nothing worse than when you go to the park on a beautiful sunny day and you decide to kick off your shoes and you walk around when you step in something unpleasant? I promise you in Jesus' day, there weren't these nifty little green bags uh, that, that could be used to kind of clean up after your camel as you walk down the path. And worse, this was a period in history when there wasn't indoor plumbing yet either. I was um, hearing from my, my wife this week uh, about an unfortunate incident um, where we didn't have indoor plumbing in our vehicle because she was picking up my son from school and driving home and there was an emergency pit stop. And uh, there was an emergency pee that turned out into an unexpected emergency poop that then it turned out that one of our other children stepped in the poop on the way back into the car. So this was a messy time of life the time of Jesus. And for all of these reasons, in Jesus' day, foot washing was necessary and it was common and it was really gross. It was all three of those things, necessary and common and gross. But because it was so gross and considered so demeaning to be someone who washes feet, it was a job that was reserved for the lowest of the low. Actually, at the time of Jesus, we can read the rabbinic literature that was there and the way that the Jewish uh, uh, literature described foot washing. And in that literature, it was forbidden for a Jewish slave to wash feet. In fact, it had to be a non-Jewish slave who washed the feet. The Gentiles could do it. Also, the women could do it if they wanted to show honor to their authority figure. Also, children, if they were in tutelage as, as pupils somewhere, they could wash feet. Now, I'm sure that as we read this story, I'm sure we can imagine, I'm sure it was true that the disciples, if they had been asked to wash Jesus' feet, their master, their teacher, the one that they followed and adored, they would have gladly done it to show him honor and respect and to to take this place to wash his feet. But to have the reverse happen, they had no category for this. To have Jesus himself get up and take off his outer clothes as they're reclining at the table. Remember, they lie down at these tables in in this time in history and they're kind of leaning up on one elbow and their feet are behind them. And Jesus gets up and takes off his outer garment and gets a towel around his waist and kneels at their feet to wash their filth. And they're shocked and they're appalled. But it's in this act that we see the glory of Jesus' love. It's in this act that we see something of the humility and servant love of God himself for us. Isn't it true for us that the more exalted we become as human beings, the less willing we are to to humble ourselves and to, to lower ourselves for the good of others? Like, how shocked would you be if your boss showed up tonight? It's like 9 p.m., say. He walks in, he knocks on your door, and he's got a bucket in his hand and some scrub brushes. Hey, you know, I'm here to, I'm here to wash your toilets. Or how shocked would you be if you were driving down the downtown east side and, and you're like, wait a second, isn't that, isn't that Joe Biden and Trudeau? What are they doing doing laundry 
for the downtown east side residents. Like it would be beyond imagination. That sort of thing just doesn't happen. And yet here is Jesus, the most exalted person the disciples could imagine, kneeling at their feet. See, there's a limit to all of our love and our sinfulness as human beings. To what we're willing to endure for the good of someone else. But Jesus' love is different and sacrificial and humble to this shocking extent. And there's two more things in this text that highlight the depth of Jesus' love for us. First of all, look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, dot, 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 that's when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Do you see that? As Jesus got ready to wash his disciples' feet, he knew that Judas, one of his disciples, one of his closest friends, was actively conspiring with Satan to destroy him. And yet, does Jesus wash disciple number one, number two, you know, I'm going to skip Judas, and number four, and number five? I mean, that would be natural. That would make sense. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus watched even Judas's feet. In Christ City, I think this teaches us that God is a God who loves his enemies. In fact, far before we loved him, he loved us. Even when we were still sinners, even when we were just like Judas, opposing and resisting Jesus, he loved us. Paul writes about this in Romans 5.10 and 5.8. He says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son wasn't when we'd already churned to be forgiven. It was while we were enemies that Jesus died. So that if we turned to him to receive his mercy and grace, he would give it to us. Or 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God isn't the sort of God that delights in the death of the wicked. We have no evidence in Scripture that Judas turned from his betrayal and from his sin to seek the repentance and, and the forgiveness that Jesus offered. But we do see Jesus in this incredible love and service, even for an enemy, which reminds us of the truth of the gospel. That he died for us when we were his enemies, when we were still sinners. The second thing that highlights Jesus' love in this passage is this. Look at verse 3. Jesus washed their feet, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So all things into Jesus' hands. That's a description of infinite, almighty power and authority. All of that was Jesus. And that means he could have avoided being betrayed and crucified. By his power, he could have crushed Satan and Judas and all of us who resist him in our sin. He could have done it that way. But in his love for us, he laid aside his power and he became his servant. 
He chose victory by a mighty display of self-giving, humble love. Because on the cross, God Most High became the lowest servant of all. Became a human being to bear his own judgment that we deserve for our sin so that we wouldn't be destroyed, but instead we'd be forgiven. So that we would be forever united to him in loving relationship with Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So do you know what held Jesus to the cross as he died? It wasn't just the nails. It was his love and obedience to the Father and his love for us that held him there. All authority and all power was his. See, Christ City, Jesus' love is a humble love that is a deeply restorative and transformational love for broken sinners like us. I think in our lives, we're used to love operating a certain way, and this love is just shockingly transformative and different because we're used to love being transactional. I think we're used to being loved if we perform well enough. We're used to being loved if we are beautiful enough. We're used to being loved if we work hard enough or if we don't screw up. Then the other person will love us. But when we think about love that way, what does that do to our humanity? To who God created us to be as lovers of him and lovers of others? It shrivels us up, right? Because we then become afraid to love other people so we're not vulnerable. And we twist and turn inward toward ourselves. We withdraw from the love of God because we can only view him in our imagination as a punitive and vindictive God, not as the God of love that he is. But that's why looking in this passage and seeing and receiving Jesus' love changes and transforms us because here we see that he was God and God himself didn't wash the feet of the disciples who loved him perfectly and served him without limit. Jesus washed the feet of disciples who would abandon him at his cross and one who would betray him as his enemy. In Christ's city, Jesus washes your feet too. Because he came to love and to serve you. He knows your sin intimately and deeply. He sees you as you really are. And yet he loves you. He's come to change you, to restore you, and to save you. Now, we need to be loved. I think that's true. Uh, We need to see this love that that Jesus displays at the foot washing. But just like that old rusted over Zippo lighter need to be cleansed from its rust and filth on its path to restoration, we also must be cleansed from the marks of our own corruption and sin as well. That's the next point we're going to look at. That Jesus is good, not just because he loves us to the end, but also because he cleanses us from our sin. Look again at this important Bible theme in verses 6 to 11. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. I love this interaction. It's such a classic Peter and Jesus moment. This Peter, he's uh, very eager and on the balls of his feet to, to respond from his heart. And he's also very quick as we see in this text to change directions. First, he's aghast that Jesus would take the place of his servant. He says, never, don't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, well, then you don't have any part with me. He says, that's it. I'm going to change lanes then. Wash my whole body, the whole thing. And his enthusiasm, he just turns, turns around and changes direction in the blink of an eye. And it's a very beautiful interaction, but because John has set up the story to point to the cross, I think we can safely conclude something about it. And we can safely conclude that what happens here with Peter has far more to say about the stain of our human sin than the grime of the Judean highway. This passage has a lot more to say about the stain of our human sin than the grime of the Judean highway. And so keeping that in mind, read Jesus' words again in verse 8. He says to Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. See, Jesus is talking about Peter's sin. He's talking about the reality of, of our sin as human beings that separates us from relationship with God as it corrupts and pollutes and defiles who we are and who God created us to be. We become like what we love. And as we love and live for things other than God, what our sin does is it pulls us away from the relationship that we've been made for with God and causes us to become corrupted in who we were made, more and more debased. Our souls more and more shriveled, just like that raisin. There's a book that gets at this in an interesting way. It's by a famous playwright named Oscar Wilde. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And the story goes, I won't tell you the whole thing. Um, the story goes that Dorian Gray has a portrait drawn of himself and that he discovers, begins to bear the marks of his sin, of his depraved living. So what does he do? Well, he says, that's convenient. I'm going to give myself to my profligacy. I'm going to live as sinfully as I want to and as I can, knowing that I will maintain this beautiful outer exterior until he comes and he sees his portrait as time goes by and he's horrified by how hideous and ugly the portrait has become. So much so that he wants to hide it away. He tries to put it in the closet and just hide it from the view of anyone to ever see or come close to. And eventually the end of the story is him trying to destroy the portrait. But apart from Jesus, this is what sin does to our souls. It's what sin does to the way that God created us to be as his image bearers. It pollutes, it corrupts, and it robs us of the beauty and the glory that we were made for. To the point, the Bible teaches, that we can no longer in any way be in relationship with God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So unless Jesus washes us, we have no share with him. Think about that for a moment. No share in eternal life in God's presence. No share in the sweetness of relationship with God that we were created for. No share in the blessings of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
No share in the rewards and gifts of a new world and resurrection bodies when Jesus returns. No share in Jesus' righteousness and his sanctifying power. Unless Jesus washes us. But Christ City, the good news of the gospel is that God, in his compassion, looked on the humanity that he made to be glorious and beautiful and good. And he saw our corruption and our defilement. He saw you and your own heart and what's really going on there. And what did he do? He came himself in the person of Jesus Christ to bear the marks and to bear the stain and the pollution of your sin. See, he who is beauty incarnate became hideous and ugly and hated and abused and judged in your place. He took all of our sin upon himself to redraw the portrait of humanity in his glorious image. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I think what happens to us as we are defiled and corrupted in our sin is that just like Dorian Gray tried to hide that painting away, we try to hide our true selves away from the view of others and from God. We try to hide who we really are in our sin. But what we see in this text teaches us that we don't need to hide from Jesus Christ City. And in Jesus, even in the church, we don't need to hide from one another as we live and operate by and delight in the grace and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. See, Jesus already sees you as you really are and he knows you and he loves you. So the encouragement that we have in scripture is to bring all of our ugly and horrible scars and pollution of sin into the light of his presence. Come to Jesus to be washed to be cleansed, to be purified. Confess your sins to him so that you might be healed and restored. John, in a letter, 1 John, he writes this, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, Jesus is so good because he restores us through his love and through his cleansing into the people he created us to be. But he also works his restoration in a third way. The third part of the restoration that he's at work in doing as our Savior is by teaching us to serve. Look at verses 13 to 14 in our last point. Jesus says to his disciples, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. See, as we've been talking about, sin is this awful destroyer of humanity. It corrupts us. It makes us love ourselves more than others. It turns us inward to think of ourselves. It makes us neglect and ignore the needs of the community that we are in in favor of just thinking about ourselves. It makes us perfect individualists operating and living in this world, thinking and caring about ourselves. It makes us step on others to get ahead if that's to our advantage. But what happens is that that selfishness, as we've been talking about, it shrivels up our souls like that raisin. 
And that's why Jesus' work as a servant is so powerful. I already said if your boss showed up to wash your toilets, you'd be surprised. But Christ, that illustration doesn't even begin to capture what's happening here. It doesn't even come close. For you to get the significance of the foot washing, you'd have to imagine a great line of the world's most significant humans, and even that wouldn't be sufficient. To imagine this great line of, of the world's greatest human beings all lined up in a row, kneeling and waiting to wash your feet. You'd have to imagine Catherine the Great and Mary Curie and Caesar Augustus and Martin Luther King Jr. and King David and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and Ramses and Mother Teresa and St. Augustine and Paul the Apostle all in a line to wash your feet. And it still wouldn't come close to what's being described in this passage. It doesn't capture the magnitude of the willing humility and the generosity of Jesus Christ, God incarnate for you. As all things belong to him, he has no need of you to serve him. And yet he comes willingly and humbly, the most exalted one in the universe and over the universe who created the universe to serve you. And in that act, the foot washing that points forward to the work of service on the cross, Jesus begins to unravel and undo the selfishness of our human sin. It's by emptying himself of his exaltation and becoming a servant, he reverses our selfishness and our greed. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, He who was rich... There's no one richer than Jesus. He who is rich became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. And it's only as we begin to have our hearts open to receive his loving service and dying on the cross for our sins that we begin to be changed to love and to serve others as he has loved and he served us. Look at verses uh, verses 15 to 17. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See that language that he's using? A servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you belong to Jesus, you know what you are in relationship with Jesus? You're a servant of Jesus. You're a slave to Jesus. Nothing more free and gloriously good than being one of Jesus' servants and slaves. But he is your master. And the example that he's given to us is to be followed. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not afraid of of the stick, but because of the incredible carrot, the offering of the incredible love of God for us. He loved us first. 
And just in response to this unbelievable gift of love and generosity and service that he's shown to us, that we gladly take up our role. Yes, you are our master. We are your servants. It is our privilege to follow you. It is our joy to humble ourselves as you have humbled yourself for us that we might serve others to your eternal glory. And you see verse 17, Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Chris said, blessed are we if we serve like Jesus. But notice what the text doesn't say. It does not say, blessed are we if we just think about serving like Jesus. The book of Proverbs in chapter 14, verse 23, I was reading it this week and it was very convicting to me. It says this, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Yet there's a way I think in our Christian lives, we like to talk about following Jesus, but we're unwilling to take a step of faith to trust him, to respond to his love to us, and to serve him. Serving is a blessing in response to Jesus who served us and who loved us. And I want to just take a couple of minutes to talk about a few opportunities of service that, that we have as a community and as human beings and places we can start as we receive the love of Jesus for us, as we can start practicing this love outward towards others. First of all, in our families. In our families, we have an opportunity to follow Jesus who humbled himself and lowered himself as a servant. I think we can lower ourselves as as servants in our families by no longer thinking first and foremost about me and my needs. But instead, beginning to think, what are the needs of my spouse? How might I serve her that she would grow in the life of Jesus? Or how might I serve him that he would grow in the life of Jesus? And of our children, not, oh, they're in my way and they're cramping my style. But how can I serve them for their good? How can I lay my life down to lead them, to show them Jesus Christ, to disciple and teach them, to cause them to live in the restored and beautiful relationship of a father or a mother who delights in their children, receiving them as a gift from God that's been given to them for a short and precious time to be used for their good. There's so much that we can do as servants imitating Jesus in our families. There's also ways that we can follow Jesus by humbling ourselves to serve others with the resources that God has given us. See, God is your God. Jesus is your master. And that means every resource that you're accustomed to in your life to think of as yours isn't yours. Your time's not yours. Your money's not yours. And your energy's not yours. These are gifts that Jesus in his wisdom and favor has blessed and gifted to you. You are a steward of all of these things. You are a steward of all of these things. So how will you use them for his eternal glory? See, I think what we do in a Western world is that we're so accustomed to to thinking first of ourselves that we put the, the setting for our pleasure and happiness all the way at max all the time. When 100% of all that life offers for me, and that's what I'll be content and happy and satisfied with. And then somehow I'm going to squish in a little bit of service for Jesus around the edges. I think there's a challenge in this text to, to willingly constrain ourselves 
to pull the dial back, realizing that all we have is a gift. Praise the Lord for his wonder and his grace and his kindness to us. But let's receive these things as the gift that they are, that are gifts to be used for his glory as they are given in generosity towards others. See, Jesus taught us to love and to serve by lowering ourselves, constraining our own appetites for the good of others. Blessed are you if you do this. Christy, I think we have an opportunity to serve like Jesus also in our city. Because the people that we meet in this city on the bus or in the workplace or in the club or the team, they're not just people to do business with or to have fun times with. They're people, they're precious human beings made in the image of God that, that God has placed you in a precious position to be a minister of grace towards. He's put you in their lives to love them, to care for them, to serve them. And I think one thing at least that happens is that so often we're afraid to lower ourselves and speak the name of Jesus because in our pride we want to look good in the eyes of others. So we won't even lower ourselves to to share the gospel with clarity or just talk about what Jesus is doing in our lives because we're afraid of what they'll think of us. Isn't that true? But look at Jesus. He lowered himself to the lowest point, taking the form of a servant to save you, to love you, to restore you. Then we can look at Jesus and be encouraged. Okay, let's do this. Let's take a step of faith to share him deliberately with those around me. To see these people as people God's blessed me with, the opportunity to share and to serve for their good. Then we also have an opportunity to serve like Jesus by, by lowering ourselves here in this church. I think so often today we think of the church as a place that, that, that we go to to have our needs met. We I mean, don't think about it as a place that's a community that God made for us to grow together with, with deep, loyal commitments towards the others for their good. Christy, I think we might have to lower some of our selfishness. <laughs> Putting ourselves first. To take the low position as a servant to seek the good of those around me. To think of the decisions of my life, not so much what can I get the most of it out of uh, for me, but, but how can I be a participant in the growth of the kingdom of God? How can I make the decisions about where I live and what job I pursue, where I'll work, what I'll study, not just in terms of what can benefit me, but how can I be a blessing to the community that I belong to? If you're a Christian, you belong to the church, to Jesus. I think this is an exciting opportunity. I think the possibility of us continuing to grow, to serve as Jesus has served us. In Christ City, I want to encourage you. I see the Holy Spirit active here all the time in remarkable acts of service. Praise the Lord. Let's give glory to him. But we can grow. We can continue to grow so that his glory increasingly shines through a new humanity that he is recreating here in the image of Jesus. 
That's what he has given to us in the gospel to shine forth his glory, to be a witness to our neighbors as Jesus changes and restores us. Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, imitating Jesus in his servant heart is missional. It's missional. It's to reach the lost, to help others see there's a different way of living that's so much better in Jesus. The way of love, not of selfishness and greed. So look to Jesus. He's incomparable in his goodness because he restores us through loving us, cleansing us, and teaching us to serve that we would reflect the glory of God outward in our own lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would continue to churn our eyes to you. Lord, that you would impress upon us that you are not a punitive and vindictive God. That you are a God of love and compassion and mercy. And Lord, that you would open our hearts to see how deeply and powerfully Jesus has loved us, how you have loved us, that we would be chained by that love. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be transformed to imitate the way that Jesus has loved us and loved those around us. Lord, so that many people will become Christians and followers of Jesus in our lives, our friends and our families and our neighbors here in Kitsilana. We ask this for your eternal glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.